Well, good evening. Thank you for being here this evening. I know there's a lot of places that you could be on a night like tonight. It's windy and rainy, namely uh, your warm home, but thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for taking a moment to take a look at God's Word. Uh, thanks to Isaiah for that song. I haven't sang that in a long time. It's a beautiful song. Tonight, if you would, open up a Bible to Luke 15. You're going to want a Bible out and handy tonight. I won't have anything on the screen behind me, and so we're going to have about four or five passages that we're going to flip to this evening. In 1997, MasterCard began one of the more famous ad campaigns that's ever been ran. And the thinking was that there are some things in life that are priceless. You've probably seen one of these ads around. One of the ones I saw was of a young toddler, and MasterCard on the commercial went through and named off how much it cost for these parents to order the young toddler the most popular book and the most popular toy and the most popular stuffed animal, and it was hundreds of dollars. Then the tagline came along, but seeing the toddler play with the cardboard box that everything ships was in instead was priceless, right? And they had this signature slogan, there are some things that money can't buy, and for everything else, there's MasterCard. And me, being a kid in Indianapolis in the mid-2000s, had a favorite bunch of these. And it was when Peyton Manning, quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts, got to be the, the host of these MasterCard commercials. And they made it so that he would go around and he would treat people in everyday jobs just as somebody would treat him, how somebody would treat an NFL star. And so he would grill out and tailgate for insurance adjusters as they would go into work. He would cheer on a deli worker as the worker sliced meat. He would try and get a high five from his favorite accountant. And he even gets a young man stocking shelves at a grocery store to autograph his produce in the aisle. The ending stating that your favorite player and being a fan were priceless. I love those. They make you laugh when you think about what we deem as priceless. What do we consider to be priceless? But more than that, it made me think about how we can elevate certain people and things in our lives. I've been fascinated and stuck on this concept of how we value and how we assign value to people in society. I've said it before, but it's one reason why COVID was fascinating. As awful as it was, it was interesting to see how the things that we valued changed. Normally, in society, we value people based off of their net worth and their title and their popularity and their social status. But when COVID hit, that changed a little bit. We started valuing people based off of who was deemed to be an essential worker. Maybe if you were a healthcare worker, you were even more valuable. Maybe we started valuing people based off of their health. I know if you were a certain age, you got to go to Kroger before everybody else did in the morning. All of these different things I just sat and wrestled with. How do we assign value to people in our lives? And I struggled with it until I realized that what I needed was a deeper understanding of what might be one of the most preached on chapters in the Bible. Luke 15. Jesus tells a few parables about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. 
Now, I have to say before I start that if you rolled your eyes in the back of your head a little bit uh, when I said open your Bibles to Luke 15, I don't blame you. I know a lot of people in here who can probably say this will be one million and one sermon that they've heard preached from here. If you have that mentality, if you would, as we go throughout this tonight, I want you to just think about why that is. Why is it that I promise you I'm not the only person that will probably have you open your Bible here this year? Why is it that we always come back to this chapter to read these stories that Jesus gives? Just something to think about as we go through this evening. But in Luke 15, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And from there, Jesus gives three different stories. If you want a, a quick note, there's clearly something important here because Jesus responds with three different stories. You think about just about anything that you would do in life and the importance of it. If I'm in class and a teacher tells me why I need to do my assignment and proceeds to give me three stories, it's probably important. If I go to one of the doctors that we have in here and they give me three different stories on why I need a diet and exercise, I'd say there's something important here. Clearly, there's something that Jesus wants us to know. And so he starts off by talking about sheep. Verse 3 says, So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. We read that and we're in awe. Verse 7 is powerful when Jesus talks about the joy in heaven. But the reality is, when Jesus would have been speaking this to his original audience, they would have just nodded. That makes sense, right? Part of that's we don't have a lot of sheep knowledge in here. I think Larry might be the only person around us with sheep knowledge in here. There might be a few others, but if I have questions about sheep, I'm going to Larry. These people who heard this would have said, yeah, makes sense. It wouldn't have been anything just absolutely earth-shattering or groundbreaking. And so Jesus continues in verse 8. He talks to the men in verse 4, so then he brings, in verse 8, he brings the women in. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." And I never understood this one either without knowing the context. It didn't make a lot of sense to me, right? If I find a lost coin, I, I usually don't do something like this. In this culture, right, these silver coins would have been something more like a wedding gift. It would have been much closer to how we would define a wedding ring today. And they would have been very valuable. And for this woman, it would have been important to her standing and her relationship and her marriage and in her family. And so when Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, he's making a strong point, but he has a lot of people still nodding their heads. He gives these two stories, and it's almost like he's building rapport. He starts with the men, he speaks to the women, and at this point, he probably has a lot of people 
Maybe not everybody, but a lot of people nodding their heads along with what he does. And then he gives one that's maybe not so relatable in certain ways. He goes on a real, real long one here, and we're going to read it. But he gives a story that he then wants them to struggle with. He wants them to wrestle with in their minds for a little longer. He start, we're going to go ahead and read this through verse 30 here. In verse 11, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. As I've said, I've dwelled a lot on the concept of identity and value. And I struggled with it, and it was probably about a year and a half ago that I heard it connected to this chapter. Mary Stewart and I were traveling back from Thanksgiving, and we had stopped into a service in Tennessee. And there was a sermon on forgiveness, and the point was simply this. God forgives because he knows the value of what is lost. And he came to this chapter. And ever since that evening, I could not get the word value out of my head. I'll probably say it a million times here within the next 15 minutes. Value. It's the value that I want to focus on this evening. And there's just simply two parts to this when we think about value. See, I read this, and the more that I dwell upon it, I don't think the value of the prodigal changed in the eyes of the father. The relationship did, no doubt. And the son ran off, and he squandered everything, and he lived in sin, and he had to live with what he had done, and if he never came to his senses and returned, he would have had to deal with that for forever. 
just like you and I if we don't ever make our lives right with our Father. But I don't think his value ever changed in the eyes of the Father. We see that with how his Father runs out to uh, greet him. The reality is that God sees value in others that we oftentimes miss. We oftentimes don't see or we oftentimes choose not to see. This is where Jesus challenges these scribes and Pharisees. And it's where he challenges you and I. Jesus says, you value your things, right? He just gave these lists. You value your sheep and you would do anything for your sheep. And you value these coins. You would do anything. You value your stuff and your possessions, but you don't value people. You don't value people who are made in the image of God. We like to talk about Psalm 139 stating that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Jesus challenges and says, why don't you value people? But he doesn't just put it that simply because Jesus, whenever he more or less issues a deep challenge. He doesn't just put it simply, right? When Jesus comes in and says, love your neighbor, he doesn't just stop at love your neighbor. He then tells you, you need to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, right? He always takes it one step further. Jesus didn't just say to be holy. If he did, everybody would have nodded their heads and said, yeah, that's good. I need to dwell upon that. He took it a step further and said, if your right hand causes you to sin, to cut it off. Jesus always had a way of taking things to an extreme that would just make you have to sit and dwell upon it and just wrestle with it in your heart. And so in this story, Jesus doesn't just say, a boy left and he lived in sin and he came back. No, it took us a while to read that, right? There's a good 15, 20 verses there. Clearly this was thought out. Jesus had a lot of interesting and peculiar details in here that were absolutely intentional. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, outlines what cultural buttons Jesus would have pressed in this story. He starts in verse 12. The younger brother asks his father to give him the share of the property that is coming to him. Asking for his inheritance before the father had passed away may as well have been asking for the father to be dead. It's essentially saying, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And the father then had to divide his property. You think about how valuable land is, especially then, right? When Jesus gives the story, he knows what he's doing. Even today, we think about land that's passed down from generation to generation and how special that is to some people. The father would have had to divide this property and would have taken time. This wasn't just a 401k transfer from the bank. He had to divide up his property and sell it. And this younger son would have sat and watched every step and never said anything because he wanted what he thought was his. And then the son leaves town. He spends all of his father's money on sin. You name it, he was likely involved in it. And when he was broke, he became so desperate that he worked for a Gentile farmer, something that in this Jewish culture would have been unheard of. Not only did he work for a Gentile farmer, he fed unclean animals fed pigs, ultimately wanting to eat the same food that those unclean animals ate. We could label him almost as the ultimate sinner in in this time period, right? And yet, he humbles himself and returns. 
And when he returns, the father runs to him. That same book, Keller notes that patriarchs in the Middle East historically don't run. I kind of like that. I think we should, personally, I think we should bring that back. But culturally, they didn't run. They were too dignified for that, right? That wasn't something they did. That was something that young boys did, but not patriarchs. And yet we see that the father took off and ran, and he felt compassion. And not only that, he then asks to have the best robe brought. He asked for the ring to be brought. And then he gives the most expensive meat, the fattened calf. Not to mention that if he did take him back as a son, that means he likely would have potentially redivided his wealth yet again. Jesus doesn't just say that a boy left and came back. Jesus says, I want you to think of the ultimate sinner and see how the Father welcomes him back, shows him grace, forgives him, and still sees value in him despite all of it. He challenges the Pharisees and the scribes, but he challenges us in that process. Do we see the God-given value in others, or are we a bit more similar to that older brother? That attitude that the older brother, Jason actually referenced this passage, but if you just flip two pages in your Bible to Luke 18, Luke writes about a story when Jesus once again talks about this attitude that the Pharisees had. Luke 18, starting in verse 9, I love how Luke starts this. This verse 9 is fascinating. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And he goes on to say, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Whenever I read this growing up, I always just wanted to make sure that in my mind I was not the Pharisee. You ever do that? You ever just say, okay, how can I make sure that I am not the Pharisee in this story? And maybe you say, well, I don't, you know, I don't shout and pray out loud or something like that. Maybe you would say, I don't, his prayer sounds different than mine. And I would always find a way to make sure that I didn't have that attitude in my heart, or at least that's how I would try and frame it, right? But that Pharisee, that parable that Jesus gives is almost the exact same thing that we read here from the older brother. The Pharisee says, I'm better than him. That's pretty much what the older brother says in Luke 15. And how easy it is to blame them and look down upon them. But when I was honest with myself reading with this, I saw some older brother in me. When I knew culturally what all I read, and I actually saw everything behind the scenes, I saw a little bit of older brother in my heart. I mean, really, did the father have to not just run out and greet him and bring him back, but did he have to bring the best robe? Did he have to give him his ring, right? 
And did he have to throw a feast that probably would have entailed everybody in the village coming around? I think if I'm honest with myself, I probably would have, I probably would have had some hesitations about showing up to that feast too. There's a part of my heart that maybe relates. And I think that if every single one of us is honest with ourselves, a lot of us can probably say that there's a part of us that agrees with that, and we wrestle with it. Jesus knew that it would absolutely force us to do some deep soul-searching. Maybe we refuse to associate ourselves with the younger brother because he's worse than we could ever be, right? These Pharisees had blind spots. They had a sense of spiritual superiority. Bob Goff has a quote that pretty much sums up (laughs) this concept. Grace never seems fair until you need a little. Grace never seems fair until you need a little. And it's ironic because the reality is is that every one of us knows we need a lot, right? Because we can relate to the prodigal in our need of grace, every one of us should show the same compassion and mercy that was shown to us. See people as God sees them. And you know what the weird thing when I read this is? is Luke 15, for the longest time, and to me, was always this just groundbreaking passage. But Jesus is kind of summarizing exactly what God's done from day one. Go with me back way into your Old Testaments to 1 Kings. Go to 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is dedicating the temple, and he gives a prayer of dedication. And so he's naming off all of these different things. God, be with the people if we have a famine, and be with the people if we have outsiders who come in. Be with, and he goes down this list, be with the people when they go to battle. And in verse 46, Solomon prays this, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers the city that you have chosen and the house I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. It's almost the exact same story. Just like the prodigal whose selfish desires took him to a foreign land where he lost everything, we know what happened after Solomon gives this prayer of dedication. The people of Israel's sin ultimately took them captive to a foreign land where they lost everything. And they longed to return home. And some of them, like the prodigal, did come to their senses and repent. And we have books about the stories of some trying to return home. And Solomon even prays that God would have compassion on them. 
That sounds just like our Luke 15 passage. When the Father sees the Son, He feels compassion. It's almost the exact same story. When Jesus tells the story of the prodigal, yes, it's groundbreaking, but in reality, he's just saying that God is doing what he's always done. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He hasn't changed. The reality is that God oftentimes chooses to work through people and see people in ways that we don't. From day one, he did it, all the way to today. He's the same God he's always been. So many people in our Bibles would not be our first pick, either because of their status, their sin, their lack of ability, you name it. Yet God sees something in them. Just in the Old Testament, you have Moses, who went from the palace to being out in the wilderness shepherding sheep. You have David, the short youngest brother who was shepherding while his brothers were away at battle. You have people who were stuck in sin like Rahab. You have Jacob, who was the cheat. And in the New Testament, you could go through every one of Jesus' disciples and point out their flaws. And yet God still sees value in them. So I ask, what would change if you're in your life if you tried to view others with the value that God does? Who would you interact with that you normally wouldn't? Who would you show compassion to like the Father did that you normally wouldn't? How would your week look different? Where would your time be spent that maybe you wouldn't before? This passage tells us to see value in others. But there's a second half of this. So we need to see value in others, but we can't do that until we find where our own value is. Number two is where do we find our value. Maybe you can say your self-esteem, your self-worth, your identity. We studied identity last Thursday night in the men's class. It was really good. Where does my identity come from? To see value in, the, in others the way that God does, I have to know where my identity comes from. Because we come to the older brother, the Pharisees. The older brother did not find his value in the eyes of the Father either. We don't talk about that quite as much. But he found his identity in his own righteousness. He stayed at home, and he continued serving and working for his Father. But I don't think that he saw or found his identity in the eyes of his Father. It was in his own work and how right he was. Because it's quite easy for us to look at the younger brother, and we often do, and we can point out all the empty pursuits in life that we want people to avoid. Don't work too hard to make money, right? That is a super easy one that we always throw out and we wrestle with anyways, right? But that's a real easy one to think about in our culture. Or don't get too caught up in your relationships, right? Don't find your value in certain relationships. Don't find your value in your academics, or your athletics, and we see all these empty pursuits that maybe we could group under the younger brother. But how often do we think about finding our value in righteousness or in your own works like this older brother does? I came to the realization when thinking about this 
that my faith is the only area in my life where my performance isn't tied to my value. I'll say that again. I came to the realization that my faith is the only area in my life where my performance isn't tied to my value. I don't know why it took me so long. This was groundbreaking for me. Because it's not true in anywhere, anywhere else. If I show up to my job tomorrow and I perform terribly, they don't have much of a need for me. I'm not valuable to them. If I go to school and I do terribly, don't do any of my assignments, they don't have much of a need for me. I'm not valuable to them. Same is true in athletics. Same is true if you're in the band and you can't hit a single note, right? But for some reason, when it comes to my faith, it's different. Because if my faith was tied to my performance, then God would have given up on me a long time ago and called me worthless. And yet he didn't. Paul talks about this often. If there's anybody in our New Testament that can talk about this, you can see it all throughout his letters. We're just going to look at two examples. Go to the book of Philippians, if you would. In Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4, Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ." Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he goes down in verse 12 and says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his, his own. We all need to be reminded of this truth of where identity is found. If you're a young person here tonight, you want peace and joy that most people around you don't have, is right here. This is where you can find it. Like that younger brother, your value isn't found in your earnings, your performance in the classroom or on the court, a political movement, your social status, your relationship. Every one of those will fail you. It's found in Jesus. But likewise, likewise, this mindset that the older brother has ultimately leads to the same lack of peace and joy found in God. Because down the road, it means that you start to see your failures and you're not good enough. It means that you're anxious about your mistakes. Your value is not found in those pursuits. It's not found in being just good enough for God or being better than those other people or doing enough to get to heaven one day. Your identity and value is found in the eyes of the Father who created you. We have a children's book that we read, which is I find myself doing a lot nowadays, and it's simply called I'm So Glad You Were Born. And in it, it says, God made you spectacular, one of a kind, creatively crafted, and divinely designed. You want something to dwell upon this week about where your value stems from is that you're creatively crafted and divinely designed. There's a psychologist, his name is John Deloney, and he talked about this concept on a podcast. He said this, In the Western world, we have an answer to the question, what are you worth? And it's usually a number. I think the answer to that question, what are you worth, is never a number. If it ever is a number, you cannot have that life and not be anxious. The answer to the question, what are you worth, is who do you love and who loves you? 
And we've kind of been told part of that already, haven't we? Our Lord's Supper passage for today is from Romans, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If I'm going to bring my best to God this year, like we've been talking about, it's not so that I will be just good enough to please him. It's not so that I can expect success in my life in return or that if I make this deal with him, he's going to let me into heaven one day. If I'm going to bring my best to God this year, it's because I know after everything he's done for me and how he views me, why would I bring anything less than my best? Why would I want to be found anywhere but in him? So there's good news tonight if you can relate to either one of these characters. The younger brother comes back, and the father comes out and greets him with compassion. But there's same with the older brother. Maybe you found yourself with your heart similar to that older brother. In verse 31 and verse 32, the father entreats the older brother to come into the feast. You notice that? Most of us probably wouldn't have the same response to somebody like that. And yet the father still shows that same mercy and patience to that older brother with the hard heart that he does to the younger. Only Jesus can tell a story and rebuke someone and also in the exact same story tell them that the father is waiting for them and inviting them into the feast. To conclude, I'd just like to tell you a quick story. Last fall, Mary Stewart and I heard some folks speak from one of our favorite home renovation TV shows. We got married, and I didn't like any of her shows. She didn't really like any of mine, and we compromised on HGTV. And when I say it out loud every single time, it makes me realize how much more I lost that compromise. But on the show Hometown, one of the co-stars was asked why people like these home renovation shows so much. Why is it that people can sit and watch these home renovation shows for hours? Her answer was pretty incredible. She said that she believed every one of us has a desire within us to see what is old and run down and broken be made new and whole again. If you've been thinking about why this chapter captivates us so much and why this is the one million and one time you've heard it preached from, I think this is it. We relate. No matter what brother we've been, no matter where we are or where we've been, where we found our identity in the past, the Father ran out to embrace us when we returned and was patient with us when we had a hard heart and still invites us into his feast. And when we decide to be found in him, to follow him, give our lives to him, just like those old homes on television, our Lord takes what's old and broken and he restores it, making it new and beautiful again. That's why we relate to this. Each of us craves that restoration deep down. It's almost like we were made for it. So tonight, do you need that? Do you need that restoring? If so, don't hesitate. Come forward while we stand and sing.